Hello, dearest listener. You have tuned in to At Your Peril by Arthur McBain and Owen Jenkins. Before we begin, a parish notice. A warning. What you are about to hear may terrify and horrify you to the very core of your being. It may also involve content unsuitable for children, those with a nervous disposition, or wimps. If you must, turn off your receiver now. No? In that case, we shall begin at your peril. Detective work is a lot like writing. You're going to need a pen. I've also often found that reading is rather like murder. You really have to want to do it. And it's those two nuggets of wisdom I carry with me on every case I crack. I simply keep my ink pen filled and look for the person who seems like they really wanted to commit the murder. Sounds simple, I know, but I can assure you it isn't. Unscrewing the pen cartridge can be beastly work, and pen leaks regularly occur. I took the 1.30 train from King's Cross, boarding early so I had plenty of time to find a nice seat. I placed my luggage on the rack, sat in the window seat, and attempted a particularly tricky cryptic crossword. I'm not entirely sure why I just told you all that, dear Dixon. Just setting the scene, I suppose. And as they say, the devil is in the detail. Oh dear, hold on, pen's leaking. polished off the crossword before I'd even left King's Cross Station. Then I pondered the weekend ahead. At the very least, I thought to myself, it will be nice to get out of London for a few days and spend some time in the country. I opened up my sleek leather satchel and brought out my magnifying glass along with the mysterious invitation I had received just a fortnight earlier. I gave it another read. Dear Inspector Dwelling, my husband and I have a very large house out in the countryside. Two weeks from today, we're having some friends and acquaintances over for the weekend. There'll be dinner, we will play games, then we will all probably get totally shit-faced. It'll be a right laugh. I appreciate that we've never met before and you've probably never even heard of us, but we would really like you to come. There's nothing sinister or fishy going on, we promise. The truth is, a few people have bailed and we didn't know who else to invite. We're not the most popular couple of late, but never mind all that. Oh, please come and we will have a ripping time. You will find a slip enclosed detailing our address and directions on how to get there. Our groundskeeper Gubbins will meet you at the station. Warm regards, Lady Throbbing Hall of Shitterton House. Very curious that these two strangers should invite me, the greatest detective in the country, to their house for the weekend. 
how did they even know that I was the greatest detective in the country? It's not like anyone releases a ranking or anything. And anyway, how do we even decide who the greatest detective is? Is it by number of cases cracked? A mediocre detective could just get lucky and crack lots of easy cases, whereas a great detective might take ages to crack a really difficult case. Do other factors play a part too, such as uh, wittiness of quips and fashion sense? Am I still definitely the greatest detective in the country? Maybe I should grow a moustache to get an edge on the competition? There were so many puzzling questions, my dear Dixon. So, as the tea trolley passed my way, I thought it best to order a cup to help calm my nerves. A cup of your finest tea, my good sir. I'm a woman. There's just one type of tea. Here you are. Thank you so much. And as I paid the trolley man, I noticed someone staring at me. A woman. Glamorous and bejeweled with a haunting face. She held a notebook and pen, which she was feverishly scribbling onto without even looking down. When I stared directly back at her, she averted my eyes and moved to the next carriage. Most peculiar behavior, I thought. I notched it up to just a starstruck fan of my detective work, possibly too shy to ask for an autograph, and went back to solving another cryptic crossword. But I do confess, Dixon, that having spent some time on a particularly tricky clue, I tied myself out and fell asleep. When I awoke, I heard... Shitterton, end of the line. All passengers must depart. Shitterton, end of the line. Ain't that the sleuth? I said out loud to my other passengers, because I was trying it out as my new detective catchphrase and wanted to see how it played to total strangers. Moderate success. Then I grabbed my luggage and made my way off the train. There, waiting on the platform, was a man in a scruffy suit, holding a sign with my name on it. I walked over to him. Hello, I am Inspector Dwelling. You must be from Shitterton House. Indeed so, sir. I'm from Shitterton, so I am, sir. I'm the groundskeeper myself, sir. Gubbins is my name. Would you like me to take your bag for you, sir? He had a leathery face, like someone had chewed a very tough piece of meat, spat it against a wall, and given it a flat cap to wear. He also wore a flat cap. Very kind of you, Mr. Gubbins. Oh, it's no trouble, Mr. Dwelling. Oh, please, do call me Herman, <laughs> and I shall call you... Gubbins. Gubbins. Is it far to Shitterton House? Depends how you're travelling. It'd take you a while if you were crawling. <laughs> no, I've got a motor car with me, so I have, sir, so it shouldn't be too long, sir. Only, I've got to stop off at the bank first. I have an errand to run. Shouldn't be too long, sir. You can wait in the motor car if you like. That will do fine. Thank you, Gubbins. I sat in the motor car and chuckled over Gubbins' remark about crawling. <laughs> I liked Gubbins. He reminded me of some of the inspectors back home. Uh, working class. Though I do confess, Gubbins took rather longer at the bank than I was expecting. I occupied my time practicing the oboe, which I had diligently brought with me, should the throbbing halls request an impromptu oboe recital at the party later. I was reaching the end of a particularly beautiful sonata when Gubbins entered the motor car. 
What's that you've got there, Mr. Dwellin, if you don't mind the asking? Please, Gubbins, do call me Herman. <laughs> it's an oboe. Have you not seen one before? Me, sir? <laughs> no, sir, not I, sir, no. We don't get oboes in Shitterton. A pity. To my mind, there isn't a finer noise than a crisp oboe honking. <laughs> Do you play an instrument, Gubbins? I, I used to play the pipes, sir, when I were a lad, but I had to give it up. Oh, and why is that? My father said I was wrecking the plumbing. Shall we be getting on our way, sir? I expect the throbbinals are anxious to meet you, sir. Very well, Gubbins, lead on. The road to Shitterton Hall was a bumpy one. On several occasions, I feared very much for the safety of my oboe. Nevertheless, Gubbins and I chatted all the way, he telling me the history of his family and employment. As a family, sir, we've worked here for generations. Uh, before me, my father, Gubbins, was a housekeeper at Shitterton, and his father, Gubbins, before him. Uh, and my great-grandfather, Gubbins, well, he was at Shitterton before then. And, and before him, my great-great-grandfather, uh, Gubbins, worked here as well. And, and before him, my great-great-great-grandfather worked here too. Was his name also Gubbins, by any chance, Gubbins? Indeed so, sir. <laughs> it was, sir, yes. Uh, I expect you've heard of old Gubbins. He was the greatest groundskeeper in the country at the time. And how did they decide that? Oh, they have assessors for that sort of thing. At the moment, I'm 53rd. Anyway, here we are, sir. We're approaching the house now, so we are, sir. Be there in a couple of ticks. Approaching the house? I do confess, Dixon, that I was stunned. It was breathtaking. Large, ornate golden gates glistened in the sun. Unrelentingly elegant pillars fronted the house, a creamy, swirling marble. Ivy danced around one of the side walls, its deep green leaves a delight for one's eye. A water fountain, complex and intricate in its manipulation of flow, sprinkled on the front of the house, a soothing sound to one's ear. The door to the house was large, sturdy, and postbox red. There was even a violinist there, presumably hired by the throbbing horse to play for my arrival, who really helped set the atmosphere of grandness. Gubbins grabbed my luggage and opened the large red door into a house which, uh, putting it mildly, felt disconnected to the one I had just cast my eye on outside. While still impressively large, the interior of the house was in total disrepair. Large cracks and marks blemished the ceilings and walls, mould grew in the corners of the room, dust, dirt, and dare I say droppings surrounded us. <sighs> I confess to being something of a stickler for cleanliness, dear Dixon, and standing there in the entrance hall of Shitterton House made me want to instantly burn all my clothes. Goodness, I said to Gubbins, who's the cleaning staff here? They should be dismissed on the spot. Well, that, that would be me, sir. The throbbing holes have been having some financial difficulties of late, and they've had to lose a lot of staff. Matter of fact, I'm all that's left. So I've become something of a renaissance man here at Shitterton, tying up all the loose ends. But it's just ever such a big place that, you see, sir, tying up everything loose doesn't seem to have an end. Oh, dear. Well, I hope they're paying you well for the extra work. Gubbins looked over each shoulder, his leathery face wobbling with the momentum. He lowered his voice. Between you and me, sir... 
They've not paid me for three months. That's why I was at the bank. I was hoping for a loan. No luck. Those gubbinses have been at Shitterton for generations. But I'm getting desperate. So I am, sir. I'm living off scraps and I don't know how much longer I can survive. I sympathised with Gubbins. Financial hardship is a terrible strain. There have been times in the past, with detective work dry, when I have been forced to knowingly order inferior champagne. I told this to Gubbins, and though he didn't smile, I could see in his eyes I had offered him comfort. We shared the same pain. I shall write an oboe sonata for you, Gubbins. You mark my words. Uh, 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 most kind, sir. Uh, now, uh, follow me this way, if you don't mind the asking, and I'll drop off your luggage and take you to meet the throbbing halls. The throbbing halls were waiting for me out in their garden. The pair were stretched elegantly on sun lounges in the centre of the lawn, wearing sun hats and sipping cold cocktails. It was curious. They didn't seem to mind getting wet at all, drizzle pouring down on them from above. And yet, why they had chosen that spot and were allowing the garden sprinklers to drench them was a puzzle to me, especially on such a snowy day. I walked over to them with gubbins in tow, making sure my detective walk was on point, sincere, sharp and lithe. I'm Detective Herman Dwelling. It's a pleasure to meet you, Lady and Lord Throbbinghall. Mr. Throbbinghall spoke first. The pleasure is ours, Mr. Dwelling. I'm Rupert Throbbinghall. This is my wife, Cynthia. We're so pleased you could make it. Do excuse us out in the garden like this. A cold icy blast shower is good for Cynthia's lungs. It is then I noticed the age difference of the couple. Aesthetically, they were an unlikely pair. Rupert Throbbinghall was strapping and handsome, bulging muscles and a stomach you could use as a washboard. He must have been in his late twenties. Lady Cynthia Throbbinghall was considerably older, frail, stringy, bony, like a vulture had grown human limbs. She could have been anywhere from sixty to a hundred. She looked, Dixon, very cold. I'm not so sure on all this ice blast stuff myself, Mr. Dwelling, added Lady Throbbinghall. Gubbins, fetch my towel and we will prepare to meet our guests properly. Yes, your ladyship. You're the first to arrive, Mr. Dwelling. Yes, I'd gathered as much. I also gather congratulations are in order. Huh? Well, today is your one-year wedding anniversary, is it not? Well, yes it is. But how on earth did you know that, dear boy? We didn't mention it in our letter. Oh, simple, really. First, you both have wedding rings which show oxidation. This happens when silver is exposed to sulfur-containing gases in the air. It discolors and then darkens as it reacts with the gas to form a surface layer of tarnish. A purer silver is less prone to tarnish, but in the case of your, um, cheaper choices of wedding rings, I can see evidence of oxidation and therefore a tarnish of around 12 months. Second, I noticed in the hallway a photograph. It looked relatively new with a lack of dust on the frame. The photo was of a bed, covered in rose petals looking out to a beautiful vista. If I consider the rose petals, it feels safe to assume that this was a photograph taken during your honeymoon. Judging from the more unique species of plants present in the vista, it looked to be Southeast India. 
I could also see from the photograph that it was raining. Badly. In India, this can mean only one thing. Monsoon season. And therefore, quite possibly, a poorly timed honeymoon. Monsoon season in Southeast India is October to December, which, as you know if you keep a calendar, was almost a year ago. Extraordinary. My word, he's good. Oh, please, it was nothing really. Merely child's play compared to that of a murder scene. Well, also, I've, I've put a big banner on the staircase saying, Happy Anniversary. Uh, that might have helped you too, sir, said Gubbins, returning with their towels. Y yes, thank you, Gubbins. That gave me a clue as well. Right. Well, Gubbins will show you to your room, and you'll have some time to get ready for dinner before the other guests arrive. Follow me, sir. I'll drop you off, and then I'll better head to the kitchen. I'm chef tonight, too. I sat in the room they had prepared for me, filthy dirty, might I add, and pondered the trip so far. I couldn't help but feel a little on edge. These were strangers to me. Why was I at their anniversary party? Why had they invited me? And why had I agreed to come? Then there was the financial difficulty, the state of the house, the plight of gubbins, the unlikeliness of the throbbing halls as a couple, the lack of other guests. Yes, it was all very disconcerting. Still, I was here now, so I endeavoured to make the best of it. I had been in my room for roughly an hour, and the dinner was approaching. I had heard a few comings and goings from downstairs. Perhaps some new guests will provide a lease of life to the occasion. Perhaps I will meet and converse with a dynamic and interesting group of professionals. Perhaps they shall want to hear an oboe recital later. With a newfound enthusiasm in my best tweed suit, I picked up my oboe and headed down to dinner. As I made my way down the stairs, I noticed Gubbins, scruffy but in a more formal black tie sort of scruffy, standing by a large window, the snow still falling outside. He was holding a silver tray, and from it he offered me a glass of champagne. Here you are, sir. The other guests have arrived now, so they have, sir. Gubbins opened the door to a beautiful reception room. There were a very small smattering of guests, scattered and somewhat dwarfed by the size of the room. They chatted and sipped their drinks. It was an atmosphere of social mingling, helped greatly by the return of the violin player from earlier. Very good, <laughs> I said to the violinist. Really helps the atmosphere of social mingling. I'm an oboist myself. And just as I was about to dramatically liberate my oboe from its case, the violinist smiled and said, Thank you kindly, sir. Please do excuse me. And scuttled off to play another side of the room. A pity, I thought. But perhaps they were intimidated by me. It's very common for violinists to be overwhelmed by the presence of oboists, as it is by far a superior instrument. I resolved to catch up with them later, disarm them, and compare sonatas. Mr. Throbbinghall approached me, chic and well-dressed, his rippling abs visible through his shirt. Mr. Dwelling. Please, call me Herman. Very well, Herman. <laughs> Let me introduce you to everyone. First, we walked towards a short, stout man with tufty white hair. We shook hands. Good evening. I'm Lady Throbbinghall's doctor, Dr. Pepper. Despite his age, he seemed fizzy, full of pep, 
Dr. Pepper has worked wonders for my dear Cynthia's ailments. Oh? Yes, Mrs. Throbbinghall suffers from an acute fear of breathing, which, as you can imagine, must be terribly difficult. But I have her on a good course of tablets, which isn't always easy owing to her acute fear of tablets. As her doctor, I'm trying to help her overcome this fear, but it can sometimes be challenging due to her acute fear of doctors. I rely on a set of elaborate disguises so she doesn't realise she's with her doctor, which seems to be doing the trick at the moment. Now, if you'll excuse me, it's time for Mrs. Throbbinghall's six o'clock tablet. And with that, Dr. Pepper put on a milkman's hat, picked up a case of milk, and made his way over to Cynthia, whistling a cheery tune as he walked. <whistles> Rupert looked at me. Oh, he's very good. One of the finest doctors in the country. I think he's about seventh. Now let me introduce you to Hugh. Hugh is a writer, a journalist. Rupert next took me to a young man, a tall, looming figure, a spark of mischief in his eyes, but awkward too, lumbering and fidgety. Hi, I'm Hugh. You done it. Detective Herman Dwelling, Rupert says you're a writer. Well, on and off, you know. And what sort of thing is it you write, Mr. Dunny? Well, this and that, you know. I used to be a big-time journal in Fleet Street, covered all sorts. I probably got a bit too big for my boots, you know, parties, booze, late on deadlines, criticising other journalists, sleeping with all three of my boss's spouses, accidentally setting fire to the office, naughty schoolboy stuff, you know. I begged for a second chance, but they let me go. So now I'm here at the local paper, the Daily Shitterton. But it's not the same, I miss the rush of the city, you know, the excitement. There's just nothing to write about here. I was hoping to get back to London as soon as hit the big time again, you know? I just need one good story. That's all I need. Something juicy. A scandal. A murder. Anyway, tell me again. What is it you do, Mr... Dwelling. I'm a detective. Detectorist, yeah. Yeah, all sounds thrilling stuff. Now, will you excuse me? I might ask Gubbings for a tour of the kitchen. Might be something I can write a story about in there. See ya, Mr. Belling. Well, I never, I thought to myself. What a charming man. And last, but certainly not least, this is my, um, this is my friend, Miss Terry. And Dixon, you won't believe it, but it was the same woman with the notebook who I'd noticed looking at me on the train. A pleasure to meet you, Miss Terry. Did you get here by train? I did, yes. I think we were on the same train. The 130 from King's Cross. Oh, right. I don't know quite what I was hoping for, Dixon, but in my head a whole range of possible interesting conversations could have sprung from the fact that Miss Terry and I were on the same train. Perhaps we could have compared notes on how comfy our seats were. In my case, very, as I was able to fall asleep. We could have discussed luggage storage. Was there enough? In my case, yes, but I did board early. We could have talked about the tea trolley. Was it good tea and or overpriced? Yes and yes. But Miss Terry seemed to shut any hope of train chat down. This is aside from the burning question I wanted to know, but wouldn't dare ask. Why on the train were you staring at me and scribbling down notes? Instead, I settled and plumped for a move of topic, which might make things a bit less awkward. So, how do you and Rupert know each other? Well, we, well, we, met, we are, uh, at um, the, um... 
friends or oh, gosh, I um, can't exactly remember where it was. I, I guess acquaintances. Um, a, a bar. Maybe more London? acquaintances than um, friends, I suppose. Oh, no, maybe not. Yes, um, sorry. Um, <laughs> that answers your uh, um. Do you know? I, I don't question. know if I specifically remember. I see, but I didn't see. Not really. There was something about the two of them I just couldn't put my finger on. A glance they had shared, a smile, a touch of the arm, a lingering kiss on the cheek. But before I was able to investigate further, Gubbins had banged a small gong. <coughs> it is time for dinner. Follow me to the dining room. Thank you. We all reconvened around a long oak table, Cynthia at one side, Rupert at the other, in between them, myself, Dr. Pepper, Hugh Dunnett and Miss Teddy. We said, Your first course, the soup, will be served soon. Thank you, Gubbins, Cynthia said. Gubbins bowed theatrically and then darted back to the kitchen. A look of exasperation on his face, a slight stench of smoke tickled my nose. Well, thank you for inviting us to your lovely home, Cynthia and Rupert, said Dr. Pepper. Yes, absolutely. Hugh Dunnett added. Indeed, I agreed, and we all raised our glasses, except that is for Miss Terry, who just giggled and winked at Rupert. Very curious, I thought. Do excuse me, everyone. I'm just going to go and check on Gubbins. Make sure he's getting on all right in the... Kitchen, Rupert said as he got up and left. Only a few moments went by when Miss Terry said, Do excuse me, I must go and powder my nose. And she too left through the same door. Now at times I have been prone to a rather weak bladder, Dixon, and though I didn't want to seem like I was abandoning a socially sinking ship, I too needed a trip to the little boy's room. I made my excuses and hoped the other guests didn't think my timing was intentional or rude. I won't go into the details of my toilet ablution, Dixon, but what happened next is significant. As I washed my hands, I could hear two voices in the hall. It was Rupert and Miss Terry. My darling. My love. I've missed you. Oh, and I you. When will this all be over? Soon, soon. Do you think it will all go to plan? I can't see why it wouldn't. We should get back. We can't raise suspicion. All right, my darling. <clears throat> I'll head to the kitchen now. Make sure everything's in order. Goodbye, my darling. Goodbye, my love. I found this exchange very perplexing indeed. Love. Darling. Yes, something peculiar was definitely going on. I just still couldn't put my finger on what. For now, though, I shook off my befuddlement and returned to the dinner, which was good timing, too, as Gubbins was just beginning to serve the starter. As I took up my seat, I looked out the window and noticed the snow, still falling thick and heavy. There you are, Mr. Dwellin. Here is your soup. Miss Terry, here is your soup. Mr. Hugh Dunnett, here is your soup. Dr. Pepper, here is your soup. Mr. Rupert Throbinol, here is your soup. And finally, Miss Cynthia Throbinol, here is your soup. Ah. 
I enjoyed the ceremonious way Gubbins had served the soup, recapping everyone's full names and confirming we all had our own individual portion. It felt almost rehearsed, as though Gubbins was a player, cast as a stock character in some second-rate fictional crime thriller, where the writer felt it important to tell the audience that the soup was not being shared. Knowing now what I know, dear Dixon, this observation strikes me as decidedly chilling. Almost as chilling as the soup itself, which turned out to be gazpacho. It was delicious, and each of us greedily guzzled the gazpacho till all of our bowls were empty and our bowels were full. Well, old Gubbins has outdone himself, said Rupert as he rose from his seat. Now, before we get to the main, I'd like to propose a toast. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. It's been a year of ups and downs for the Throbbing Halls, which began with our beautiful wedding, of which so many happy memories prevail. Then a romantic, if not a little rainy, honeymoon. <laughs> and since then, uh, Lady Luck has eluded us. I'll be open and honest with you all, as I consider you my friends, when I tell you that this year my gambling addiction grew quite simply out of control, and has sent us both into crippling debt. I have had dark, desperate days at the racetrack, often betting on horses not even appearing, in the hope that they might turn up accidentally, win, and clear my losses. Regrettably, this did not happen, leaving our financial situation extremely perilous. We have borrowed from friends, we have let staff go, and Shitterton House has suffered. And then my wife's health deteriorated. Her fear of breathing, and then subsequently her fear of tablets and doctors, has too been a challenge and a strain. And to my wonderful wife, who has remained so strong, first I must say I am sorry. Sorry for letting you down, for betraying your trust and for accidentally spending all of your money. And second, I must say thank you. Thank you for sticking by me through these peaks and troughs. And yes, this year might well have been quite a deep, hefty trough, full of nasty, sticky excrement, but on the horizon, not too far away, I can see a way up. A glorious peak soaring high above the clouds, and though it's not going to be an easy climb, it can and will be topped. Yes, very soon, almost imminently, in fact. Life is going to be really great again for me. Us. Us. I'm... It's going to be really great for us. So, please, all raise your glasses and join me in a toast. Happy anniversary to my darling wife. To Cynthia. We all raised our glasses in solidarity of Rupert's touching words. But as we did so, we all heard... Gubbins came into the room to check on the commotion and screamed. Ah! I too turned to look, and to my horror, Cynthia was face down into her empty bowl and didn't appear to be moving. Her skin was turning a pale blue. Dr. Pepper, who was also concerned, got up and went over to her. He checked her pulse. Ladies and gentlemen, Cynthia Throbbinghall is dead. Oh my God. Cynthia, darling. Rupert began to cross the room to reach his wife. Uh, well, his ex-wife, I suppose. But I stopped him right in his tracks. It was time for me to take over the situation. 
Stop right there. I'm sorry, Rupert. I know this is a shock for all of us, but Cynthia's body must not be tampered with. Until we have more information, I am treating this as a crime scene, and therefore nothing must be touched or moved. But, but you don't mean to say that Cynthia has been... murdered? I'm afraid I can't rule it out. Well, that's preposterous! Oh my god, said Hugh, excitedly scribbling in a notebook. I will be undertaking a thorough investigation, so I would ask you all to stay right here until I have figured out a plan. And, judging from the snow outside, which has settled and is by now very deep, you're not able to leave anyway. This weather also means something quite critical to the investigation. Considering the adverse conditions and lack of transport options, it would be impossible for anyone to have come and gone during this time. And this makes one thing crystal clear in my mind. If, as I suspect, Cynthia is the victim of foul play, the culprit, the murderer, is right here in this very room. Yes, there's no mistaking it. If we are dealing with murder, it has been committed by one of you. And, uh, sorry, sorry, violinist. Look, I, I really do think your playing is lovely, but please, this is not the time or the place. Someone has died. Oh. Right. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>